Hello and welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Professor Richard de Grace. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Richard de Grace. Uh, I'm a professor of astrophysics at Macquarie University. Not only is Richard a talented and experienced astronomer, he also has a keen interest in the study of astronomical history. And so I had the opportunity to talk to Richard about both his astronomy research and his historical research, both in Australia and internationally. What got you into astronomy in the first place? Oh, that goes back a long time to when I was a little boy, perhaps, uh, let me let me think, uh, I must have been about eight years old. I, uh, I'm from the Netherlands, so I was at primary school at the time, and I liked geography. Uh, one of my teachers um, was teaching geography, and one of those days I fell ill and I couldn't go to school. Just that day, the lesson on geography was about the moon, and I missed the lesson on the moon. So... As an avid reader, I decided to read up on the moon and then on the stars and then on the galaxies and the universe. And, you know, at school we had convocation every morning. So all pupils could, you know, come up with new things that they wanted to uh, let, let their fellow schoolmates know. And for months on end, I had something new about space, um, you know, <laughs> rockets, the universe. Must have been, I must have bored uh, my teachers out of their mind and the students as well. But that's actually what got me into astronomy. And uh, and from there you went to university. So what what what, what was your specialization originally when you when you first started uh, researching? Um, I did a PhD on the structure of spiral galaxies that we view on edge, uh, edge-on spiral galaxies. Um, that was actually uh, like volume two in a series of uh, PhD pieces by students of my supervisor. The first volume was face-on spiral galaxies, and mine was edge-on spiral galaxies. And the next one was related to the edges of spiral galaxies. So that was kind of a sequence. Uh, that's what I studied for uh, four years and nine months at the University of Groningen. Um, it was structure, it was not too physics-y, and that kind of, you know, I did, didn't really like it. I wanted to do more physics, but it just didn't happen in my PhD, but that happened afterwards. And so from there, what did you do? <laughs> I, um, uh, pretty much three days after defending my PhD, I uh, jumped on the plane to the United States uh, to take, on, take up a postdoc position. Uh, I spent three years at the University of Virginia where I got into uh, the study of super star clusters, massive star clusters born in enormous starbursts in nearby galaxies. Uh, uh, from there onwards, my next position was a fellowship at Cambridge University in the UK, working with the then director there, Professor, Professor Jerry Gilmore. Um, that got me into the research um, of the nearest galaxies, the large and small Magellanic clouds. I still work on them. Uh, it's, they're, they're among my favorite objects to work on. Uh, from following the position, the fellowship at Cambridge University, I secured a staff position at the University of Sheffield, also in the UK. That had to do with the fact that my wife had just moved over from the US. I met her uh, during my postdoc in the US. She got a postdoc position in Cambridge uh, in, in um, micro or cell biology. And within a year or so, I got a staff position, but not in Cambridge. So I didn't want to move too far away. And Sheffield, Cambridge is about a two hour, 15 minute drive. So that was a weekend relationship for a number of years. I moved to Sheffield as a, as a lecturer, made career progression to senior lecturer and reader. And meanwhile, I had established a lot of uh, strong links with Chinese colleagues. And that, that was actually driven by the fact that my wife is Chinese. And um, one thing led to the next. I got an offer to uh, come as a, as a full professor to Peking University at the newly established Gabli Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics. 
I spent eight, eight and a half years there for uh, a significant part of that time as the associate director in charge of research at the Institute to really put the Institute on the map internationally. And um, then in 2018, I moved to Macquarie because uh, a new position of Associate Dean International had come up. And given my background, um, that was something that excited me. Plus, I had always wanted to move, eventually move to Australia. You mentioned that you've, you're still studying the Magellanic Clans and you find them very fascinating. What about them um, interests you? What, what do you find so fascinating about them? They are sufficient, they're external galaxies, but they're sufficiently nearby that we can actually study the individual stars and the star clusters in them in detail, plus the, the, the other contents, the, the gas and the dust and whatever is there. They are the nearest set of uh, interacting galaxies, galaxies that are evolving under the effect of their mutual gravity, plus they're also interacting with the Milky Way galaxy. Now that has led to a whole range of features of interest. Um, more star formation in the small Magellanic Cloud on the side of the large Magellanic Cloud, probably induced by these gravitational effects, uh, the Magellanic Stream, the Magellanic Bridge, all, all kinds of features to do with galaxy interactions, which uh, must have occurred much more frequently in the, uh, in the early universe when galaxies tended to be uh, closer to each other on average, given that the universe is expanding, of course. Um, and so we, have a, a, we are at a prime location here to, to uh, study that kind of physical process using the Magellanic Clouds. Now, the Magellanic Clouds have been studied for many, many years, of course, using visual light. Since about uh, a decade, I've been a core team member of the VISTA survey of the Magellanic Clouds which is an infrared or near-infrared survey with the four-meter VISTA telescope in Chile. And that team has been together. We have, a, we have uh, about 10 or so core team members and then another 10 uh, early career researchers, PhD students, postdocs, and the like. Um, and we have, we have produced close to 50 papers by now. And it's, it's a great, it's a very social team. It's a great team to work in. And um, we produced interesting new science. Uh Aside from your ast astronomical research, I also uh, noticed that you have an interest in uh, astronomy history. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? What got you into that? Yeah, um, so that started when I was based in China, and uh, I've always had an interest in culture. And so in China, um, the first Europeans to arrive there, the first European was, it was an Italian Jesuit priest by the name of Matteo Ricci, or in Chinese, Lima Do. And he got a foothold in Guangzhou and uh, first in Macau and, and then in Guangzhou. And it was the first European who was allowed to live in China under the, the emperor. And so that got me into the history of Chinese astronomy, particularly the European contributions to that. He, he eventually moved, he was, a, he was interested in lots of different things. He was a poly, polymath really, not just an astronomer. Uh, he was into maps, he was into uh, tools and equipment. Um, and so his his home in Guangzhou in the south of China became almost like a museum for his visitors because he had all these really cool cool uh, things to show them. He moved to Beijing to and established the Beijing Bureau of Astronomy under the emperor, and he was actually uh, quite free to go, uh, you know, to imperial court, etc. So that that got me into that, and. Um, I, I encountered a colleague of mine work, who worked for the Chinese Academy of Sciences at the, at the Institute for the History of Sciences, and he became a good, good friend. And uh, at some point he said to me, I'm organizing a conference at um, uh, Hainan Island, which is uh, like the, the large island in the south of mainland China, which is like the Hawaii of China. It's a, it's a place you go to, to, uh, to enjoy, in essence. He said, I'm organizing this conference um, 
in about nine months time from now, it's on the history of astronomy. I'd like to invite you and pay uh, all of your expenses. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. But he said, you will have to give a presentation that's suitable for this uh, conference. And um, the conference was on geodesy. So measuring uh, distances on land in the 17th and 16th centuries. And I had started to explore uh, a, a database um, issued by a Dutch institute, the Huygens Institute, um, that contained lots of letters by Christian Huygens and about seven or, or so um, scholars from the 17th century in, 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 the, in the Dutch Republic at the time. And one of the uh, open issues there was Christian Huygens, the, the famous scholar, his, um, his efforts in the determination of longitude at sea, which was a big problem at the time, because uh, once you were out of sight of the coast, you, it was impossible to determine where you were, were on, on Earth unless you had a proper timepiece that, uh, that, that told you the time back at the reference position, like the Greenwich Meridian or whatever. Greenwich was not established until 1880, I mean, as, an, as a meridian, it was not established until 1884. And so this was a big problem on, on board of ships. So I started researching that. I, uh, I gave a, a 20 minute invited talk at that conference, which was very well received by the historians of science who were there. And uh, one thing led to the next. I, I talked to, um, at, a at a conference I attended in the United States, I talked to an editor of the Insti Institute of Physics Publishing. Uh, they asked me, do you have any ideas for a book? I said, well, I've started to research the history of, uh, of longitude. And he said, oh, that's a very interesting, uh, a topic so write a proposal and you know uh, we, we take it from there so i wrote a proposal which was sent out to for peer review i got some comments on it and, and eventually a book contract and so i wrote that book in about uh, two and a half years time a book called time and time again determination of longitude at sea in the 17th century and uh, that actually i've been milking milking that work because in a book you can only say so much but in research papers that follow on from that work you can actually go much more in depth and so i've i've got a growing portfolio of history of astronomy papers, mostly focused on longitude, about 10 peer reviewed papers by now. And that's that's moving forward. So my most recent um, uh, papers in that area relates to the first observatory established in Sydney, because I wanted to do some history of science research in addition to my astrophysics research that related to Australia, because I'm based here after all. And so I talked to um, Andrew Jacob, who is the curator of Sydney Observatory, and I said, well, I've heard of, of this fellow called William Dawes. He was the first uh, astronomer, um, well, he was an astronomer on the first fleet from England to Australia. Do you know anything about him? And Andrew's response was like, oh, the mysterious William Dawes. Well, we don't know much about him. And so that, of course, piqued my interest. So Daw um, Andrew, sorry, not Dawes, Andrew told me <laughs> there is a memorial plaque on uh, one of the south piers of the Harbour Bridge in, in uh, honouring Dawes and the, the Dawes battery that was established, uh, you know, Dawes Point, uh, the, the rocks there. And it also mentions the observatory. And so I went there and it said, indeed, 90 feet west of this pier was where the first observatory in, uh, in Sydney or in Australia was established. And so I was curious where that claim came from. And it turns out that, um, that Kate, Gren Kate Grenville, the, the famous author, uh, she had written a book called The Lieutenant about William Dawes, but it was fiction. But on her website, she said that she had stood at the, at the place, at the location of the observatory, just to take in the atmosphere. It's like, oh, sure, she knows where the, uh, where the location was. So I contacted her through her agent. And she responded uh, personally by email quite uh, quite quickly. She said, oh, actually, I didn't didn't quite figure out where the where the location was. I just stood in the general area. Let me update my website." 
right? So that's quite interesting. And anyway, so that's, that led to me going to the State Library, the National Library, the State Archives, or the historical, sorry, the, the Library of the Royal Australian Historical Society and looking, looking at contemporary maps and documents, etc. And that eventually led to, to research papers on signs on the First Fleet and the uh, location of the first observatory in Sydney, which is not, by the way, on the location in, implied by that memorial plaque. It's on the other side of the Harbour Bridge. That was, um, we had a very nice press pack about that. And uh, so that's actually quite a cool story. So that's how I got into the longitude. Now, having done this now, um, we're following up doing two different things. At this point, um, we've got a book contract, Andrew and myself, to write a biography of William Dawes. We can use our two, uh, two first papers on him as the basis, and then we expand that to talk to write about his life in general that's with uh, Springer uh, uh, Springer biographies um, and then the other thing I'm doing is I've uh, the next project I would like to do will be on the astronomer on board HMS investigator which was Matthew Flinders ship going on the circumnavigation of Australia in 1801 to 1803. Now it turns out that uh, at the time uh, suitable clocks, suitable timepieces were available because uh, John Harrison had established, uh, had, had produced uh, H4, the clock that won eventually half of the uh, British Longitude Prize in 1772. And so there were some copies and one of those copies was made by, uh, by Larkham Kendall and that copy is called K1. The first fleet, uh, sorry, that's the first fleet took K1 with them, but uh, Captain Cook on his second and third voyages took K K1 with them. And so did, um, uh, Matthew Flinders, he took a few of those copies with him, not K1, but some other copies. And uh, it turned, and so th those copies of, of uh, suitable timepieces were difficult to find, they were expensive. So they always took astronomers on board with them as well because those clocks would run down and so they were not as stable as, as present day clocks. And so the British Board of Longitude had appointed an astronomer to join the investigator, um, John Crossley, and uh, it turns out that Crossley fell ill by the time they reached uh, the Cape of Good Hope. And so he had to return to England. Now, the, the crew on the investigator could not wait for a replacement to be sent from England all the way to Cape Town. Uh, and there was no suitable replacement on shore in South Africa. And so the task, tasks of the astronomer determination of longitude at sea, in essence, fell onto Matthew Flinders' shoulders. Um, but Matthew Flinders was the commander as well. And so uh, uh, he, he was busy and he delegated that task to his brother. His brother was, was called Samuel Ward Flinders. And he is, um, there's very little known about him actually, um, but he's seen as a bit of a black sheep of the family. And that's probably an, a reputation that's not warranted. He was a very careful observer. He was a good astronomer. He, he was instrumental in mapping the coast of Australia at the time as well, but very little is known about him. I'm, uh, so that's my next project, actually, to, uh, to research uh, Samuel Ward Flinders. Um, so you mentioned just, just before that you, that you found the original location of the first observatory in Sydney. How did you, how did you actually do that? Ah, right. So it turns out that in the archives of the State Library and the National Library, uh, the State Archives, uh, there's, a, there's a crown plan in their archives, there are about half a dozen maps that indicate the position of uh, the original observatory, either as planned or established. There are four or five maps that are true to shape, and there's also a map that's more schematic, made by a convict, Francis Fawkes. 
that also shows more or less the location where the observatory is. Now, the issue is the observatory was on what's what's called Dawes Point or the, the rocks now. Initially, it was actually called, called Point Masculine after the astronomer Royal Neville Masculine. And in pretty much all of those cases where we found contemporary evidence, the observatory location was on the side of Sydney Cove. So that's on the east, eastern side of the Harbour Bridge, not on the western side as implied by the plaque. And so that's how we found that. Plus there is some circumstantial uh, evidence as well in the sense that there are some maps with meridian lines and meridian lines must have been obtained from the observatory because they had a quadrant there uh, that was established in, an, in a niche in the rock to, to determine uh, meridian passages. So what, aside from it being incredibly interesting and fascinating, why, why would we want to know about the history of astronomy? What, what can it tell us um, for the future? Well, so yeah, it is fascinating, and we uh, we hope to set the record straight. But um, uh, one of the things that we're doing is trying to um, instill confidence in people that the history of that in throughout history, um, it's not just been the famous people that have done all the work, but there is a lot of work done by. Uh, you know, people who are working very hard but are not very well known, people, local people who contributed very significantly, like for instance in Sydney, um, William Dawes um, worked very extensively with uh, some of the local Aboriginal population in, and he made friends with a local Aboriginal girl called uh, Pejagarang, from which from whom he learned uh, the Eora language and his notebooks uh, remain and they are a key source of the Eora language as it was uh, 250 years ago. Wow. Okay, that's very that's it's incredibly interesting. Yeah. yeah, was there anything else that I missed that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, so <laughs> we've talked a lot about history of science. It turns out that if you look at my uh, publications, that's perhaps about ten to twenty percent of what I do. All the rest is hardcore astrophysics, mm. which I'm really quite keen about as well. Mm. And and so one of the areas is not just imaginary clouds, but I'm also very interested in firming up the distance scale in the local universe. All right. Without proper distances, we know don't know what the masses are of objects or even their ages, and that actually feeds all the way into the age of the universe. And at the moment, there is a huge controversy about the, uh, the value of the Hubble constant, for instance. Really? So all of the, uh, there are different derivations based on the Planck, satellites, the measurements, which are in, in essence of the cosmic microwave background and of locally uh, determined values of the Hubble constant. And the, the difference there is, a, is a, at least uh, six sigma, so the six times the standard error bars. And that needs to be reconciled. And so whatever we can do to reconcile that difference would be helpful for astronomy at large. So how would you go about resolving um, uh, such a discrepancy? Right. So um, we can do, well, the community is doing two things, right? We, we're going for uh, measurements that pertain to very, very great distances, the edge of the universe. Um, we call that high redshift. And we're also, we can also approach it from our nearby from a near, nearby perspective. Um, distances in the universe are uh, distributed according to a cosmic distance ladder. So in essence, what that means, if I want to know the distance to the nearest stars, I can actually, over the course of, of a year, I can see them go around on the sky in an ellipse, following the ellipse, the ellipse uh, elliptical orbit of the Earth around the sun. So that's called the parallax. And the size of the angle of the, of the, the size of the ellipse on, on the sky tells me, in, in, in essence, how far away those nearby stars are. If we have a good sample of nearby stars of, let's say, a certain type, we can then apply 
general physics scaling relations to similar stars at greater distances. Uh, so um, one of the types of stars that one can use in a nearby universe are, are our Lyrae variable stars. They are periodic variables that go from bright to faint to bright. That period is directly related to how bright they are intrinsically. So if they were put at the same distance, they all had the same brightness, depending on their period, of course. And so this is called a period luminosity relation. We can apply that uh, uh, as a scaling relation to objects, similar objects at greater distances, and then link them to other objects for which we can determine uh, distances in different ways. And eventually you go out on a like uh, different rungs of a distance ladder. So that's, that, uh, but the issue is there are always assumptions associated with determining those distances, but with assuming that stellar populations at great distances are similar to those at, at closer distances, et cetera. So the uncertainties are what's, what is hampering us in uh, reconciling those differences in the Hubble constant. And is that where that discrepancy comes from, those assumptions? Uh, we don't know yet, but uh, it's it's one of the contributing factors. That, uh, in science, one always needs to understand one's uncertainties. In astronomy, we tend to underestimate our uncertainties, and I think we have to be honest, more honest than we have been in the past. And so that's actually one of the approaches we are taking. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear, and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.